This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. As you may know, on this program, we ask poets to select a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then they read a poem of their own that's appeared in the magazine. My guest today is Ben Perkert, who began contributing poems to our pages in 2012 and whose debut poetry collection, For the Love of Endings, was published in 2018. Ben, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the poem you've chosen to read today is Notes on the Reality of the Self by Jory Graham. What drew you to this poem? Jory's work uh, is tremendously meaningful for me. Um, Jory also as a person is meaningful for me. She was my teacher. Um, I love her work, particularly for the way she can sort of just um, fix her gaze to something. And, you know, it should be boring, right? It's just you're looking at a river. There's nothing inherently dramatically interesting about that, uh, except that her mind is such that, I don't know, I find myself uh, reading with rapt attention. So I... I love how um, she sort of takes this scene and makes it more than what you might expect. Well, why don't we hear the poem from our archives? Here's Ben Perkert reading Notes on the Reality of the Self by Jory Graham. Notes on the Reality of the Self Watching the river, each handful of it closing over the next, brown and swollen, oak limbs gnawed at by water film, lifted Relifted, lapped at all day in this dance of non discovery. All things are possible. Last year's leaves coming unstuck from shore, rippling suddenly again with the illusion, and carried, twirling, suddenly shiny again and fat, toward the quick throes of another tentative conclusion, bobbing circling in little suctions their stiff presence on the surface compels. Nothing is virtual. The long brown throat of it sucking up from some faraway melt. Expression pouring forth, all content, no meaning. The force of it and the thingness of it, identical. Spit forth, licked up, snapped where the force exceeds the weight, clickings, pockets, a long sigh through the land, an exhalation. I let the dog loose in this stretch. Crocus appear in the gassy, dank leaves. Many earth gases, rot gases. I take them in a breath at a time. I put my breath back out onto the scented immaterial. How the invisible royals. I see it from here, and then I see it from here. Is there a new way of looking? Valences and little hooks, inevitabilities, probabilities? It flaps and slaps. Is this body the one I know as me? How private these words and these. Can you smell it? 
brown with little froths at the rot's lips. Meanwhiles and meanwhiles, thong, then growing soggy. Then the filaments where leaf matter accrued round a pattern, a law slipping off precariously, bit by bit, sudden flicks, swiftnesses suddenly more water than not. The nature of goodness, the mind exhales. I see myself. I am a widening angle of and. Nevertheless, and. This performance has rapidly, nailing each point and then each next right point, interlocking, correct, correct again, each rightness snapping loose, floating, hook in the air, swirling, seed down, quick, the evidence of the visual henceforth, and henceforth, loosening. That was Notes on the Reality of the Self by Jory Graham, originally published in the August 24, 1992 issue of the magazine. So I was struck hearing that poem, how uh, much it's a poem about looking, obviously. And as you said, it it, uh, starts with just a river, but it really is about language, about the body, and how the invisible roils. Um, And I love how in the fourth line she says, this dance of non-discovery, which of course is like, to me, not true. Of course, it's followed by all things are possible. But it almost takes this emptiness to encourage this thought. How do you take this looking, which she does better, as you said, than almost anyone? Right. I I mean, I think there are things that are being discovered all along the way of of this poem and the way it sort of you know, meanders um, and moves not unlike a river. I mean, I think that's that's sort of like the amazing impossibility of Jory's work is the fact that, you know, as I said, you know, before, I think this poem should be boring, right? There's nothing to call attention to um, this moment as being uh, a seminal moment in one's own, you know, understanding of, of who they are and what the self is and, right. and the reality of the self. But I guess what I'm so drawn to is that... Um, in, in this poem and in a lot of Jory's poems where there's, you know, looking at a body of water, nothing is static. The river is changing all the time, of course. Of course. But also the speaker. I, my favorite lines from the poem, I think, are, I see it from here and then I see it from here. Mm-hmm. And when I read that, every part of me wants it to be there, mm-hmm. right? I see it yeah. from here and then I see it from there, but that's not what it says. Uh, so for me, that calls into question a little bit, you know, you can change um, even if you stay in place, even mm-hmm. if you don't necessarily right. um, get a different perspective on the river. You're not the same person uh, that you were even a millisecond before. Well, and it, it sort of plays with that old adage, you know, that you never step in the same river twice. Right, right. But it's like the self is the river, not just this external thing. Uh, I love that moment, too, right after that where it says, is there a new way of looking, dash, Valences and little hooks, dash. I mean, I love the dashes. Yeah. Inevitabilities, probabilities, question mark. And in fact, there's a break in between probabilities. And there's this kind of, uh, you called it meandering. It's almost, to me, also fragmented and mm-hmm. it's lurching forward. And also I hear, I mean, I think different readers would hear it differently. I hear in it a sort of vulnerability or uncertainty. Like, have they invented some new way of looking? Am I doing it wrong? Like, (laughs) you know, valences and little hooks, it almost sounds like there's been some, like, technological innovation. Uh But, of course, you know, as you said, we've been looking at things the same way, you know, since forever. Yeah. Um, So it strikes me that, of of course, there isn't. 
Well, and then she says inevitabilities, which are different than probabilities. Right. You know, and probabilities don't, don't even make it on one line. You know, it's probabilities. I mean, I don't want to, you know, read too much into this, but inevitabilities, probabilities. I mean, it makes me feel like there's some sort of gesture to quantum mechanics or like, the, I mean, th- this is the first poem in her book, Materialism. Mm. So a lot of these questions around, you know, nothing is virtual, sure. all is possible. I mean, I think she's really wrestling here. And, and this is not an easy poem. I don't, I don't find it an easy poem to read or necessarily engage with. But I think um, it's really questioning, you know, what is consciousness? What is the self comprised of? Is it matter? Is it material? Or is it something um, that lives above or outside? That's a good question. <laughs> do, you, do you have the answer? Kevin, can you tell me? <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> well, that makes me think of a few things. One of the things I came to understand about poems, I don't know, somewhat early on, is that really what you're seeing or what you want out of a good poem is a mind at work. Yep. You know, and, and hers, of course, is so special, but she also announces what she's doing, notes on the reality of the self. And uh, different poet might have only had an interior monologue, but I think it's almost the river that, as I said, is the self and Mm. then also becomes kind of a way or an occasion to meditate, which is, again, you know, we can think of haiku that does that or ancient Chinese poetry or romanticism. You know, it's also in this rich tradition of thinking about the self in nature. Yeah, I agree. And also, you know, it, it would be such a different poem you know, if it weren't titled Notes on the Reality of the Self, that I, I think the most interesting part maybe is is the notes. Because um, <laughs> right, it just, right, right. you know, a, a river does lots of things. One of the things it does is it can scatter. You mm-hmm. know, it can, it can scatter fallen leaves as it does here. And so I almost feel like um, the poem embodies that sense of sort of debris, That's the, the debris of thought, really. Um, but, and that's what the notes are. I think so. I think so. Well, it suggests that, you know, it's like a sketch, you know, like there is an oil painting coming. But I actually, of course, we love the sketch. You know, we love the the artist thinking about the process or preparing to do something big that in itself is big, I think. Yeah. And I love the ending, which, um, you know, you start to see what one takes for quotations or... Uh, certainly this italic section, I see myself, I am a widening angle, and nevertheless. And then suddenly you say, well, are these just ways people think? Are these kind of part of the notation, the fragment of thought? And then this end, quick, the evidence of the visual henceforth and henceforth loosening. Yeah. Uh, and what do you take that loosening to be? Oh, it's a good question. It's also hard, I think, for um, our listeners because it's not – you know, you can't you can't see exactly, but there are these phrases that are in italics. But um, I was curious. The evidence of the visual henceforth was a phrase that really um, stuck out to me. I looked it up, and it's from uh, Ashbury's *The Skaters*, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of these italic phrases are. And so they're all from Ashbury. They're all from *The Skaters*. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe one of them is not. But um, and if you were to look at the poem, they all sort of congregate closer to the end. If we do, you know, read the poem as a metaphor for a river in some ways, it's almost like the silt. It's almost like, you know, they, they've collected um, the mind of the speaker is, is less active or has somehow accrued, you know, language from, from other places. Uh, you know, henceforth loosening. And then it ends with a dash. 
I don't know if this answers your question, but I don't know how this poem could arrive at any uh, at anything more conclusive than that. You know, where does a river end? I mean, it's it's <laughs> the really, sea. Yeah, exa- exactly. Right, <laughs> yeah. And, and in that right, way, right. It, it doesn't. It only yeah. it loosens and it and it goes on. Um, well, it's funny because just today I was. Uh, looking at um, The Negro Speaks of Rivers by Langston mm. Hughes, a very different set of rivers, but also one that, as he says, is ancient and, mm. and dusky as the flow of human blood and human veins, he says. That poem's thinking about the archetype and trying to draw across time. Hmm. And this feels like uh, something different, an eye speaking across time. And one of the qualities of that is reaching toward not you know other rivers or other histories, but reaching toward Asbury, other poetries, other imaginations. The dash, of course, also for me conjures Dickinson yeah. um, and her own meditative, argumentative, philosophical verse. You know, I think sometimes uh, when we read another poet through another poet, uh, sometimes people get frustrated or they don't know why. Why are you referring to another poet? You know, that's how we breathe. You know, yeah. we, we think of poetry. And I felt like what's beautiful about it is it's not relying on this other poem. It's uh, devoured it. It's, it's swallowed it whole. It's, it's felt it uh, in its bones. And, and it's part of this poem's language, too. Yeah, yeah. I described this poem earlier as, as not necessarily easy or accessible, and I, I don't know if that's completely true, because I think that there are so many, as I reread it, so many honest um, questions that, that really feel um, almost childlike in their innocence. Like, for example, is this body the one I know as me? I mean, that, that it, it's a deeply philosophical question, but it's also a question, you know, uh, my wife and I just, just had a kid, and I know that, you know, one of the the joys of, of this process is going to be, you know, when my son Emilio starts asking questions and, and, <laughs> and asking questions about the world and about himself and, sure. and, you know, questions that maybe we start, maybe as poets, we don't, but, you know, <laughs> I, everyone else takes for granted, right? Uh-huh. I mean, we do too, let's be honest. But um, is this body the one I know is me? I mean, it's both a, a youthful question and the oldest question on earth. Right, like, Is exactly. this me? You know, where is me? Does me start and end? Right. And is this, you know, the body, of course, could be the body of water or the physical form. But I, I guess I'm mentioning it because I think, you know, what you were saying around um, the different ways in which we are influenced. Like, is this body the one I know is me? Is this poem that I've written entirely mine? I mean, it. it you're right. There's shades of Dickinson here. There's, sh- I mean, for Jory, you know, someone like Stevens, I, I see in here too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- so this is not. I mean, her these are poem. good things to have echo in your poem, you know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> like all the poets we're mentioning are are the poets, you know, are, are some of our great poets who thought aloud with us, and we think aloud with them. I also would say that there's something about the body of the actual poem. You know, hmm. if you're hearing it, you're hearing some version of that body, but also it's a visual poem too, mm-hmm. and it kind of almost kind of narrows to the part where it says earth gases rot gases that's just one line yeah i take them in a breath at a time i put my break breath back out mm-hmm. and then suddenly it goes back out like it's the whole poem narrows to these really i mean kind of visceral gases like the stinky river um it's wonderful and then it goes back out uh with this breath yeah and i think it's thinking about the body but also the line, mm-hmm. uh, what, it, what makes a line up? Is it breath? Here I think it's thought uh, and breath kind of meeting. Yeah. I mean, it's weird how often 
rotting comes up in this poem. And, it, and you know, before today, I reread materialism, and there's so much uh, rotting in that book and, and material sort of rotting away. And, and erosion is something that, you know, Jory has written a lot about. And, sure. and ha- you know, erosion is... So, another book title. An, another book title, exactly. And I think there are all kinds of ways in which nature and the natural world is meant to degrade, whether it erodes or it rots, you know, on its own. That can be unpleasant, but it can feel organic. And then, of course, there are the ways in which our natural environment um, has been, you know, rotted, has been mm-hmm, ruined, has, mm-hmm. has has been eroded. Sure. Um, and I think she's a poet who, who also has great concern uh, for that. Yeah, and I think she's... Especially the recent poems I've seen from her, I think, sure. are very much thinking about that and thinking about our global concerns um, in ways that I think are really powerful. The last question I have about the poem for you is, do you think that the poem, at least, believes in the reality of the self? Or is the reality of the self something the poem is trying to establish or discover? Oh, man. I keep going back to the title because notes on the reality of the self doesn't really allow for the possibility that there isn't a real self. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Um, there are notes on this phenomenon, then, and you sort of take it for mm-hmm. granted. But, yeah. but I think, I'm not going to punt on the question, but I, but, <laughs> I, but I will say this. I think that one of the things I love about um, Jory's poetry, one of the things that I love about poetry in general is the earnest questioning. I don't mm-hmm. know if this poem um, asserts that the self is, you know, a, a real phenomenon or sort of a, a, a construct that, that we impose um, upon ourselves to make sense of the world. But I believe that the poem doesn't know and mm-hmm. wants to find that answer. That's right. And that that's what hooks me, right? Because if the poem came at me and said, you know, oh, this By is the what way. the self is. Right. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want, you know, that argument. Um, I want to be brought into uh, a genuine discourse. Sure. Um, it's a weird poem, but I love that it, it invites us into that weird, it, you know, we, we get into the river and it's messy and we can sort of think through it for ourselves. I think it's also a poem of discovery, like we, we started saying. Mm-hmm. And these parts in the middle, the long brown throat of it, sucking up from some faraway melt, expression pouring forth, all content, no meaning, which is the mind as well as the, the river, the force of it and the thingness of it identical. That, for, for me, sounds almost like William Carlos Williams mm-hmm. when he's thinking aloud about, you know, no ideas but in things, you know, uh, other of his poems which invoke spring as a kind of primal force, uh, one that he marries to creativity. And here she's saying the force of it and the thickness of it identical. There isn't any separation. And, and that seems to me really a, an interesting uh, comment on poetry in a way, a comment on the mind, a comment on the self. All those things kind of collapse for me in that intricate moment, and uh, we're all the better for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's uh, look at your poem, shall we? So in the October 29, 2018 issue of the magazine, The New Yorker published your poem, News, which you'll read for us in a moment. Is there anything in particular you'd like to tell us about it before you do? No, why don't we dive in? All right, here's Ben Perkert reading his poem, News. News. The wind turns grass into italics, saying, See, do you see? Even mountains fall gracefully, like a red bucket emptied of rain. This morning in Chile, 
a million sardines washed up dead. They appeared thankless, without jobs. The waves crashed through the night to get there, arms open, grabbing the sand. Do you see? The TV says this is mating season, and, sorry, I switched channels. Like a poem begins and ends before learning to crawl on its own. Maybe the ocean is nothing except the sound of being born. You must remember, don't you? The cold air hitting your skin. The hands you fell into. That was news by Ben Perkert. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So this poem, I, I was hearing it again. I'm, I still am struck by that great line, which is when it just, to me, goes from, you know, whatever it's going to be to something totally unexpected, which is they appeared thankless without jobs, which is a bit of humor there, but also a bit of commentary. And, and I wondered about sort of the background of this poem. Were you thinking it would have this kind of channel switching quality or, or did it come about from the writing? Um, well, I think... I wrote this poem. I forget exactly when uh, this happened. You know, it was one of those stories that got about 10 seconds of coverage, which even then felt like a long time. Um, But, you know, in the coast of Chile, there were just all of these sardines that had just died, you know, seemingly overnight. And there were um, images, uh, horrifying images. Not only have all these animals suffered and died um, uh, needlessly, right, because this was the result of a toxic algae bloom, which was the result of, you know, acidification of the water and, and right, climate right. change and all this stuff, right? Um, not to mention the the fishermen's lives who were going to be impacted there. But it was just this image of, like, fish, dead fish as far as you could sure, see on yeah. this beach. Um, and I, I looked at it, you know, with some horror, uh, as I often look at the news. And then the news moved on. And yeah. I moved on. And... Um, that, to me, was the occasion for writing the poem. It, it was not uh, the image itself, though certainly that emotionally had an impact. It was, oh, look at me. Now I'm eating cereal, and now I'm on the subway, and now the news is talking about something else. And, right. and you know, that was what um, I couldn't escape. And so that, that discomfort uh, was what led me to think about, how, how can I capture that? How can I go mm-hmm. back to this this poem because it feels unresolved and I'm, uh, you know, I'm not done with it. Mm -hmm. Were you thinking, I mean, obviously sardines don't have jobs, uh, (laughs) but here they do, you know, and I loved that kind of little social moment. There's a moment in Berryman where he says, bats don't vote, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, it's it's like, I wish they did actually. (laughs) It's commenting on voting, of course, and not on bats. Right. Um, And so I I felt like it was, it was doing that work there of, of being social, but also then saying the TV says this is mating season and, oh, sorry, I switched channels. There's a level of humor, I thought, in the poem. Were you thinking of humor or do you often employ it or is it just part of the writing? Yeah, I mean, I think 
I'm drawn to uh, poets who, you know, invite humor into their poems while, of course, still being deadly serious. Yes. And, um, right, so a million sardines washed up dead, they appeared thankless without jobs. In my mind, that voice, they appeared thankless without jobs, is suddenly a different voice. That mm-hmm. That's the voice almost mm-hmm. of a... You know, uh, I should just say it. It sounds like a Republican, really, you know, looking and saying like, well, who cares about these fish? You know, they've washed up on our shore and they they can't, you know, contribute to the GDP and they're they're unemployable. And that's that's absurd. We're talking about sure. dead fish. But that feels like, um, you know, the economic lens through which uh, we view refugees or exactly immigrants or exactly right. The poem, I think, attempts to. Uh, shine a light on that, um, you know, absurdity and, mm-hmm. and that, that cruelty really is what it is, mm-hmm. I think. Because who really cares um, if we're talking about life and the destruction of life? Well, and you do a, a sort of personification, not just of these sardines, but also the ocean itself. The waves crash through the night to get there. Arms open, grabbing the sand. Do you see? Uh, and I'm interested both in the personification, which I think is powerfully done, but also this other quality, this this questioning, which returns uh, with a vengeance at the end of the poem, and also, I think, invokes this you. Mm. Uh, and tell me about that you. I mean, in the beginning, see, do you see, is that too is a different voice, right? Yeah. As you know, you know, you, you write the poem and... and then sort of you have to kind of back channel a, a, a rationale in a sense because you're you're helping me see these things that to some extent I I wasn't conscious of. Sure. Um, but I think that, you know, as I'm looking at the poem now, I think that um, in the same way that when you watch the news and when you turn on TV in the morning, you know, th- there are all kinds of different voices coming at you, right? We're, we're going to go live in the mm-hmm, field and then there's mm-hmm, cut to commercial. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then so I think I wanted the poem to have that sort of frenetic quality to it where we feel mm-hmm. like there's lots of different people vying for our attention. Um, right. To me, the end of the poem, you know, maybe the ocean is nothing except the sound of being born. You must remember, don't you, the cold air hitting your skin, the hands you fell into. For me, that is um, the crux of the poem because it's speaking to all of us. It's it's the thing that we all um, share. We may not remember it. Uh, you know, certainly we don't. Um, <laughs> but it's the touch that uh, introduced us to this dark and beautiful place. Well, and also it's falling into these hands. Right. There's a kind of uh, descent. Um, and in the tradition I'm part of, uh, you know, especially I think African-American culture, descent isn't always seen as bad. Like, you know, we're down for each other. Like, sure. you know, uh, down can be up, right? And here I feel like it is both. It's like on this edge of, is it like, you know, the fall from grace? Is it a fall into something better and bigger? It's all there for me. Yeah. You know, you're lucky if there are hands to catch you. But it doesn't say hands catch you. It's the hands you fell into. Right, right. And um, we all fall into different, you know, circumstances. And some people are lucky in terms of who is there on the receiving end after they're born. Sure. And then and then others um, don't have that, that luxury. Well, and I think this, this part before that, like a poem begins and ends before learning to crawl on its own. Uh, that's an interesting part that I think can go by quickly because you've just switched channels. Right. And yet it's another channel saying, like, think about 
how this poem is also crawling and, and a thing and personified and, and, and a child or something given birth to. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things. I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I teach at Rutgers and, um, you know, when my students come to office hours, you know, sometimes it's almost like they pitch ideas to me for poems. Like, hey, I've got this idea for a poem. And, <laughs> wow. you know, um, I think sometimes um, constructs or, or concepts for ideas they don't work. Like this yeah. poem, this poem shouldn't make any sense. Like no, we're talking right. about sardines and then birth. I mean, if someone, I guess my point is if, if someone ca- doesn't have to be a student, if someone came to me and said, you know, I've got this idea for a poem and it's going to yeah. talk about TV channels and switching news. And <laughs> it, I, I would say, you know, abandon it. Yeah. That is, it that's, a, that's a fucking mess. Yeah, a paraphrase is never a poem. Right. You know? Right. And I think the thing that uh, I try to get students to understand or anyone, you know, myself sometimes. Right. Is that, you know, poems enact. Yes. You know, and a good poem enacts what you're t- trying to sometimes in a lesser poem describe. Mm. And oh, I, I love that. I, I think that's what I love about uh, the gram and what I love about this poem is it's enacting, as you said, the news, the, the distractions of the day, but also the deep harm and the deep questions. You yeah. know, and it ends with these questions. Yeah. I want to attribute this to a particular poet, but I feel like so many different poets have said it at some point. But, you know, if, if there's no surprise for the writer, there's no surprise for the reader. And this is to say nothing about the quality of this poem, but when I wrote this poem, I was surprised by the ending. I didn't know if it was good or bad. Sure. But I wrote those lines and I was like, hmm, how did I end up there? That's not where I expected to <laughs> right, end up right, was right. this scene of, you know, the moment of birth. And uh, I wish I could tell you it was connected to my wife giving birth recently. It, it's not, right? It predates all of that. So um, that to me is the joy of, of poetry and writing poetry in general is that we're constantly uh, struck by what we produced and, and how we got there. Well, and I think um, surprise is a great way to put it, but a great way sort of to learn what we think. You yeah. Know? Because sometimes I think um, – People assume that you know, mm-hmm. uh, and you know. I think it's Flannery O'Connor who says, "You know, I had to write it so I knew what I thought about right. the thing." And uh, O'Connor is one of those people who, of course, she has this abiding and important to her faith that is important to the stories. But they have this quality of of like you're on this weird ride with her, and you don't know like exactly how you're going to end up. And it feels like that is part of her process. Mm. And I feel like that with. You know, like I said, like good work, I think, brings you along. Yeah. And and sometimes you're ahead of the poem and and the poem uh, is helping you get there and pushing you a little bit. And sometimes, you know, you're falling into, as you say, uh, this meaning. Can I ask you, do you know, do you ever approach a poem and know the ending before you begin? Usually not. Yeah. Usually it's like a line or two. Um, I have to almost sometimes like fight endings because yeah. you can like sometimes an ending can sound good and you're like, that's just an ending. Right. Yeah, like I've just created an ending that sounds like, but um, but um, but um, you know, right. like, whatever. Or like a like, punchline. You know, I mean, it has a kind of uh, end quality. Uh, shaving a haircut, two bits, you know, and so you have to kind of fight that sometimes. And what I love about both of uh, your poem and the grand poem is, you know, they're open ended. They ask us something, even if it's with a dash or a question mark. They ask us to understand that the poem kind of continues for a beat or two at least after hmm. the poem's there. 
So you had a book come out in 2018, is that right? Yeah. Uh, but this poem, News, is is newer. Uh, can you tell us about what you're working on now? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I'm writing a series of, of poems that are trying to, I think, in, engage with the news, but uh, a bit indirectly, right? I mean, this one talks about a specific news event. Most of the work that I'm writing recently um, doesn't, but it, it is trying to sort of uh, speak to uh, the urgency of, of this moment. You know, I'm at that point um, where the poems are beginning to collect and sort of coalesce, but I immediately distrust that because <laughs> I want to just be writing and not really, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, thinking about the collection. But of course, um, you know, I hope that's where it's headed. Yeah. How long into it do you sit down and go, well, maybe I have, you know, a, you're saying a series, which is slightly different even than a collection of poems. I mean, I try to put that off the the minute that I feel like, oh, I know what I'm doing, oh, I, I, I mean, that's just killer. Yeah, right? that's terrible. Um, that's a horrible moment for any writer. It's a horrible moment. So I, <laughs> Because it's it's literally like, uh, you know, I've learned how to ride a unicycle, and then, you know, you, you don't. And then you break your nose. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so I sort of want to stay in the dark as, as much as I can. Mm-hmm. So I'm in, I'm in that happy, that, that yeah. oh-so-rare happy window right now mm-hmm. where... I'm just writing and not, you know, stressing too much about, you know, is this going to cohere? You know, what's the title? Um, You know, actually, to take it a bit full circle, Jory Graham used to tell me, you know, the poems speak to each other because you all wrote them. And so there are threads there connecting them or even linguistic or, you know, syntactical ticks that you have that are going to give your work um, a kind of coherence, even if you can't see it. Right. Which I think is, uh, it's a confidence booster, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> well, you know, like I, I studied with Denise Levertov, and what I loved about oh, wow. her is that Levertov, I, I think certainly during the 60s and 70s, she was writing um, lots of work, but also she would arrange the books really in the order the poems were written. Oh, interesting. Uh, and, you know, Adrian Rich had another version of that where she would, you know, date all her books after a certain time, you know, because she wanted to indicate the ways in which these were the process and this is when, what was happening and here's time uh, huh. kind of being represented. Uh, I don't think I have the gall to do that. Like, I don't know if I'm able to um, in my own ordering, but I think the ordering of a sequence or a series, it is this kind of mix between I know what I'm, where I'm headed and, as you said, like, you know, you have to kind of one foot in front of the other and not look back a little bit. Right. Uh, and then, you know, I tend to discover, uh, just like with a poem, that these things fit together in this certain way. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, for me, especially when you're starting out, that can be useful to put all the things together and you see the gaps. Mm. You know, I'll sometimes say, like, you've got 50 poems about mom and none about dad. Like, right. either that has to <laughs> become a formal thing or, you know, you you have to be aware of it. Right, right. And sometimes the sequence itself tells you. Uh, and then sometimes it's like, you know, you got to, you've been avoiding this thing. Hmm. And so that's what I, I tend to try to think when I'm writing. But, you know, again, like we were talking, it's very organic, I think. And I think sometimes people too early perhaps or, or too eagerly like limit that and hmm. sort of say, this is what it has to be about. It can't be these other things. And what I love about a series, like when I was writing poems about Jean-Michel Basquiat, for instance, it let me be really wild. I could right. do one thing in one poem and not be like, this is the only poem that has to solve all these problems. I can do it you know, this way today, and tomorrow I can do something totally different. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Lovertov. We, um, with my students yesterday, we read an essay of hers, my favorite line of which is, form is never more than a revelation of content. Of course, yeah. And, and I just love that idea because I think it 
relates to this idea of a series. Like what you know, what if you're privileging the form, if you're privileging you know the series above the poem itself, you're sort of maybe looking in the wrong direction. Mm. But if if um, the poems sort of happen organically, if they're all sort of um, along a similar through line, you know that's interesting, sure. right? That's your obsession as a poet, and and then <laughs> that's the thing. That's the thing. Like chase that. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. News by Ben Perkert, as well as Jory Graham's Notes on the Reality of the Self, can be found on NewYorker.com. Jory Graham's most recent collection is Fast. Ben Perkert's latest book is For the Love of Endings. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.